Hey guys, this is Joy and Claire, and we just got back from LA. We're both a little tired. We're going to talk all about the Create and Cultivate conference that we went to. It was fantastic. It was fabulous. But I wanted to read a quick email before we get going with the guest on this week's episode. This is just such a perfect way to explain how we stumble upon guests like this. So if you have someone that you'd like to recommend for our show, please write us. This is joyandclaire at gmail.com. This email is from Caroline Clark. Hi, Joy and Claire. A friend recommended your podcast to me last year, and it has been such a great addition to my regular podcast stream. Last September, I moved from Texas to Thailand. Yes, quite a big leap for a job with a study abroad organization called the International Sustainable Development Studies Institute in Chiang Mai. You recently mentioned regenerative agriculture and sustainability issues. I wanted to recommend my supervisor, Dr. Mark Ritchie, as a potential podcast guest if you're interested in digging deeper into some of those topics. Our study abroad program teaches about sustainable issues in a broad spectrum of areas. Sustainability is an interesting subject to think about in the context of tourism and how we enter into other cultures and interact with the local people. Doing this in an ethical and sustainable way is something that our students experience in their courses. Mark also has a very entrepreneurial spirit and has opened a CrossFit gym, coffee shop lab to teach enthusiast or professional courses in coffee. We just hosted the annual Chiang Mai CrossFit throwdown that had over 100 CrossFit athletes from around Southeast Asia. Mark has a gift for building spaces for genuine community to grow. Since this has come up a few times in your 2020 podcast, I thought you might be interested. Mark is an easy talker and excellent resource for breaking down myths and sharing the most updated research findings about living sustainably. Let me know if you're interested. Thank you for all of your work. Yours is one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Best, Caroline. Well, thank you so much, Caroline, for this connection. We had such a great conversation with Mark. I got to say, there were so many things that I thought I knew about living in a more sustainable way, and I was completely wrong. So I think you're going to enjoy this episode. Tons of great information. Claire, the whole time, was like, bouncing up and down on her seat. She was so excited. This is so her jam. So here's the great episode with Dr. Mark Ritchie. So first and foremost, I love that you're in Thailand. We, I think this is the first time we've had, uh, I think you're the farthest destination as far as being on the podcast. Congratulations. <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, yeah, you couldn't go much farther. Probably not. So really quick, I want you to do an introduction and your bio for our listeners. You're one of those people where I'm like, okay, I, you uncover more and more as you get to know you, where you're like, what? You're also in a band. You're also a musician. You own a CrossFit gym. You're a prof- I mean, there's so many cool things about you. So let's give our listeners a little <laughs> bio about you as a human. Okay, so I am a sociologist and musician and a CrossFit coach. I live and work in Chiang Mai in northern Thailand. We have a CrossFit gym, CrossFit Chiang Mai. It was the first CrossFit gym set up in Thailand. We set, we started about 10 years ago and at the time it was the only it was the first one in Thailand and one of the only ones in Asia. So that was when the community here was quite small. But the reason we started the CrossFit gym was because we also run a study abroad program with my day job, which is the International Sustainable Development Studies Institute. And what ISDSI does is we've been running now for 20 years. And what we do is we have 
American college students come and do a semester of study abroad with us. And our whole, our whole idea is to have our courses to be community-based, built in and with local communities. Um, we have our students learning experientially about the ecology and cultures of Thailand. So they're, they're out farming with small-scale organic farmers. They're backpacking through the mountains of Mehongsan and the Thai-Burmese border. And they're sea kayaking in southern Thailand from island to island while they're studying the Arak Lawoi people and traditional ways of life. So all of that together is why we started CrossFit, because we're really grounded in this community here. We're really trying to get American students exposed as much as they can to the reality of the challenges of sustainability and have them do it outside the classroom. I mean, why come to Thailand for months and spend most of the time in the classroom. Other biographical stuff, yes, I'm a, I'm a musician, uh, along with some Irish friends, started an Irish band here a few years ago, 15 years ago, I think now, and uh, it's called The Itinerants, and I play the boron, the Irish drum, uh, whistles, and mountain dulcimer, among other stuff, and occasionally sing, depending how late at night it is. Oh my gosh. Where are you from originally, Mark? Um, I was born in California, uh, in Southern California, and then moved around, lived on Long Island for a long time. My parents are from Appalachia, uh, from Eastern Kentucky, so that's why the Mountain Dulcimer is a part of our family's heritage. Lived around a lot. Most recently, when I lived in the States, lived in uh, Berkeley, where I was in graduate school, and the East Bay in California. Oh my God, you're pretty much the coolest human I think Claire and I have ever met. I'm just going to go on record and say that. <laughs> I, everything you just said is like the coolest stuff, the coolest options. Yeah. If I was to put together well, a human good. that I wanted to be, like starting from where you were born <laughs> to where you are now, I'm like, I want to be this person. Like you're living, I'm, I want to just jump into Irish your existence. <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and so we got connected with you from one of our awesome listeners um, who is in your program. And yes. so just, yeah, so just wanted to give an awesome a shout out to our awesome community. But one of the topics that we've been really exploring a lot on our podcast lately has been around sustainability. And, you know, we only know so much um, for myself. It's, it's something that is very um, near and dear to my heart because I have a master's in natural resource law and um, with an emphasis in like public lands use and water law, which is especially in Colorado, very much at the intersection of all the different sustainable things. I work in the natural food industry where there's a lot of that being brought up more and more with different, you know, different packaged goods companies that are really putting that at the forefront of their mission as different brands. And also just, you know, being humans in this world right now, it feels a little scary. And so, you know, there, but there's only so much that we, that I know, that Joy knows that we can talk about in an educated way, apart from just like, oh, I read this, you know, on the internet. <laughs> so right. we're so excited to talk to you and get some really good insight into, okay, what is it that we do need to be worrying about? What is it that people maybe are worrying about but is not as big of a deal as we think it is and or we can't have as, as much of an impact as we think we can. And 
you know, some of these more controversial topics like eating meat and traveling and things that there's so many opinions out there about right now and not a lot of those, not all of those opinions are firmly grounded in research and science. Um, So we're excited to get to the bottom of some of those issues. Yeah, great. That's that's what we teach on. That's what I've been doing for the last 25, 30 years. So let's dive in. So I would love to hear just a little bit about how you got into this field of sustainability, given that 25 years ago, it was not nearly the buzz that it is today. And then we can kind of dive into more of those tangible goodies. Sure. Yeah. The way I got into it is that as a living in Thailand, a lot of the work I was involved in was with local communities and in rural development and development in other areas. And, you know, as a natural part of that, was really concerned about what's happening with food production. How are local communities able to sustainably produce food? And, you know, originally sustainability was really trying to understand how do we use resources now? And this is from the Brentland Commission. This is kind of the original definition. How do we use resources now that are not going to impact future generations. So, you know, the idea is, sure, we could use, a, a, great, a great simple example is we could use, say, forests, but if we're using a lot of wood, wood has a natural regeneration rate. So we can only cut down so many trees because we have to cut it down. We have to use those trees at a rate that allow other trees to grow and regenerate that natural resource. You know, that's kind of, that's a simple way to think about sustainability is that, you know, what are we doing now and are we going to leave enough for the next generation? And that's how, that's how the whole conversations around sustainability first started is like, you know what, we're using a lot of resources. Our ecological footprint is massive. We're using a huge share of the earth's biocapacity and it's outstripping the ability of these natural systems to regenerate themselves. So, you know, we, we started this journey in teaching about sustainability 25 years ago and started our program, our study abroad program, 20 years ago. A, a lot of study abroad programs talk about this, but our whole focus has always been on understanding sustainability and really diving into what's happening uh, on the ground in Thailand. And the reason this is such an interesting place to study this and learn about it is that in the global north, in, in North America, among wealthy communities or middle-class communities, we're really disconnected from the real issues in and around sustainability. You know, we see about climate change in the news, and it's just that. It's, it's, it's in the news. It's not really affecting us as much directly, although, of course, that's starting to change. Right. And I think that's a really good point, not to interrupt you, but I feel like that's such an interesting point that people do see it on the news, but then there's all these people that are like, oh, it's not a problem. I mean, we could do, go down that rabbit hole, but I really want you to talk about how important it is to, <laughs> like, this is a problem, and I think the reason why we don't think it's a problem is we're not seeing it right in front of our face. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think that's I think that's where, you know, part of what I'm trying to do on our study abroad program is to reconnect college students to the natural world. And I think part of the reason that sustainability and the problems of sustainability are such a big issue is that we're not really connected with these natural processes, right? Most people don't see where their food comes from. Most people have no understanding of what farming is, is really like. You know, we use, we use the natural world, if at all, for recreation. 
and we're not connected to those natural systems. And I think that is really the pressing issue for, for people to start reconnecting with these natural processes, these natural ecological processes. And, you know, that's, that's why, for example, when we are, uh, for example, on our program, we're in the islands in southern Thailand and we see kayak from island to island and part of the reason we do that because it's fun it's super cool to be getting college credit while you're paddling right but the real reason we do it is I want the students to reconnect with these natural rhythms they have to pay attention to the tides they have to pay attention to the wind they have to talk with the indigenous Arak Lawoi people and find out you know, in this archipelago, when the tides shift, what are the currents going to be like? Because I have to move from island to island. And it's that, it's that direct engagement with the natural world that helps us really understand these issues about sustainability. And you talk to fishermen, and you're like, so what was it like when you were a kid? And like, oh, it was totally different, totally different. Like, we used to catch all these fish, and now the fish are gone. Or, you know, we used to catch five or six different varieties of fish every time we went out now we just get one and the fish are smaller and the weather's changed like there's a, a, a muslim elder in in one of the villages we work in and she talks about this that the wind is strange now it comes from different directions and what's happening is the southwest monsoon is shifting as as global warming intensifies and you know the predictions that farmers used to have about when to plant when is the rains going to come What's the dry season going to be like? That doesn't work anymore. And for us in, you know, the global north living in air-conditioned houses and buying our food from a grocery store and things like that, we're so insulated from those natural rhythms of natural ecosystems and natural processes that we can just kind of go about our lives and pretend like sustainability isn't an issue. But, you know, if you're a fisher you know, you're, you're fisher folk and you're, and you're, you're going out into the ocean in a, in a 20 foot long boat. You're right there. You see it. If you're, you know, a tribal villager up in the mountains and you're, you're trying to plant your rice and you're trying to figure out when are the rains going to come, um, you're right there in the teeth of it. And I think that's why it's so important for people to reconnect with those natural rhythms and not just use the wilderness or the natural world for recreation but actually try to understand like what's actually happening. How does this actually affect us? How does this affect our food? How does this affect our soil? And then how does this impact these bigger issues of climate change and carbon and all sorts of stuff that people are worrying about all the time? So for somebody living in a suburb in the U.S., what do you think we can do to make that a part of our day? Is there anything that you feel like, yeah, everyone can go out and try this one weird tip to you know, connect back, <laughs> back with nature? <laughs> Five weird tips. Click here. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think there's, I think there's a very concrete things that everybody can do. You know, there's, there's a really good, uh, there's been a couple good articles. Michael Mann, who's, who's a very well-regarded climate scientist, has talked about individual choice doesn't matter. And he's right. He's right. You know what? I don't care if you use plastic straws or not. Um, especially if you're part of the disabilities right community, there are people who have to use straws. 
because they're disabled and they might not be disabled in visible ways. So we need to be accommodating to that, right? Whoever thought banning plastic straws would be kind of this ableist thing that discriminates against people who have disabilities. But it sounds great. Oh, I'm not gonna use plastic straws anymore. You know, most of the plastic in the ocean is from fishing. It's fishing nets. Really? You're like blowing my mind right now because Claire and I have been talking so much. I, I want you to go more about the individual choices because that's what Claire and I have been talking so much about. It's like, we can do individual things, but <laughs> so we're going to talk about that. But talk more about that piece of, I, I didn't even cross my mind about, you said people with disabilities need straws. Well, right. So the bendy plastic straw is actually invented as a medical device. Right, um, right. Because if people are quadriplegics, obviously they need that. But there are people who have certain nerve damage and they walk into a restaurant and they look fine, but they have weakness in their arms and they're not able to raise their hand you know, above their shoulder or um, they're not able to pick up any weight and things like that. And so those people are being denied plastic straws because, oh, we only have plastic straws for disabled customers. If the restaurant does that, and most of them don't. So, you know, there are people out there who, for whatever reasons, can't pick up a glass of water to drink. And so the whole plastic straws thing, it's a great example of kind of the law of unintended consequences where, oh, we're going to ban plastic straws. Okay, that's fine. I, we ha I have a, one of the other things I do is we own a cafe and... <laughs> Oh my God. Because why not get involved in like a thousand things? You're you're doing that thing where like everything you're gonna uh, you're gonna unleash all of these other little hidden gems about your life. It's great. So now you own, own you also own a cafe <laughs> and a coffee roaster. Yeah, I'm drinking uh, coffee that we roasted about four days ago. We know the farmers it came from, so we're like hyper locally connected. When are you guys coming to Chiang Mai? Is, I yeah, guess yeah, the question you're living the dream. We just want to jump on a plane <laughs> right now. <laughs> All right, I want to start. I do want to still circle back. Like the the straw thing is important, but I do want to circle back to connecting to the natural world because you like struck a huge chord yeah. with me on and, that. And and I have one more question. One more question about that. I want you to say too. Like, so fishing is the biggest plastic. Say that again. The about uh, fishing is the so it's difficult. It's difficult to pull apart how much plastic waste in the ocean is post consumer. So the whole the whole thing, and it's it. This is again all of this stuff is motivated from the best of intentions, right? But plastic waste in the oceans, a lot of it is from discarded fishing nets. A lot of it is, is there is a lot of post-consumer waste. If you go to a beach, a lot of times you'll see a lot of plastic washed up on the beaches. And we've been to some pretty remote beaches and you see a lot of stuff washed up. But in terms of the, the mass of, of, of stuff, a lot of it is these plastic fishing nets that get tangled or damaged and they just cut them loose and let them go. It's important for individuals to, for ethical reasons, to make changes in their individual lifestyle. But what Michael Mann talks about in, he had an article about this. What's really critical about this is that the issue is policy. The issue is policy and the issue is how you're voting. And are you putting people into place who can make significant changes to public policy so that we stop subsidizing the fossil fuel in industry. So we stop creating this stuff at its source. That's the only way things are really gonna change. And that makes it difficult because I would love if it was easy enough that we just don't use straws in my cafe anymore. We have wooden straws, we have bamboo straws, we have metal straws, but we still have plastic straws because some people are allergic to those other things. And it's also that things aren't simple. People want simple answers. And unfortunately, there's, there's a great quote from H.L. Mencken that says, for every complex problem, 
there is an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. And <laughs> it's a great quote, right? I want to hang it over my desk. Um, I actually, I start, I t- when I teach a seminar on sustainability, I start with that quote. And look, there's, there's ways for people to, to reconnect. And I think that those individual choices can help. And like you were talking about earlier, reconnecting with the natural world, that can help us motivate us to push for policy change. And those policy changes, if they're well-informed by science, if they're thoughtful, can really make a difference and can really move the needle. So that's kind of what I think is, is, is really important. So what are some, I feel like I wanted to circle back on what are some ways that you feel like we can connect. You've, yeah, that maybe yeah, you've seen sure. work or you've seen other yep. people like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I guess uh, I had a conversation about this just recently with a friend of mine. And, you know, I think the most important thing to do and the reason we've dedicated, you know, the last 20 years of our lives to working with college students is we want to connect them to communities. And so much of our lives in the West and so much of our lives in the modern world, we are disconnected or we're only parts of virtual communities. You know, following somebody on Instagram and Twitter and and things like that and having these groups of people, it's good, it's meaningful, it's helpful, but that real human connection is is still critically important. And, you know, the best advice, because I just was asked this question yesterday, was what do you do? My best advice for people, especially someone sitting in like suburban North America, where you can't go out, I'm going to go sea kayaking with indigenous fishermen. I mean, that's not everybody's option. Yeah, no. <laughs> but uh, it is to connect with farmers. You know, mm-hmm. find a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture. Find somebody doing what's called regenerative agriculture. And it's organic agriculture has been hijacked by big industrial, big industrial companies that are, you can do organics on an industrial scale. And the, the problem with industrial-based agriculture is you take a single factor producing, say, soy or corn or kale or whatever, and you optimize your production just like you would in a factory. And it's industrial. And the, the real problem of sustainability is that we, are, we have to think about how our culture, these human processes, connect with these ecological processes. And local ecosystems constrain and enable certain human processes. And it's especially around food production. And I think the best thing people can do is search out people doing regenerative agriculture, where the concern isn't just I'm organic or not. Like a big company can be organic. They just use certain types of sprays. Um, They're still highly mechanized. They're plowing the soil. It's still a monocrop. It's not trying to look at these natural systems and understanding how do natural systems actually work? How do these systems actually work? And how can we find models of food production in particular that can model these natural systems and work with it and at the same time producing highly nutritious food for for people? And that's where I think uh, this work that Diana Rogers and Rob Wolf are doing Um, with this book and film Sacred Cow is really important because they've done a really, really good and excellent deep dive into the science behind this to try to figure out how do we farm sustainably and how do we farm in a way, how do we produce food in a way that is not degrading 
the resource base, but is actually improving it. And, you know, there's a, a great example of regenerative agriculture is um, a farm real close to here of a community we work with where, um, you know, you can be on one side of the street where they're growing baby corn for commercial production and export and the soil is dead. There's nothing in it. It's dry. It looks like clay. Um, you step across the street where they have these organic polycultures and they're doing um, animal integrated agriculture and all sorts of stuff and the, and the soil is black and rich and it's full of earthworms and all sorts of little critters and it's a completely different paradigm of thinking about food production. And I think for, you know, people who are concerned about sustainability, connect with people who are producing food in a regenerative way. I guarantee you, everybody has a way to do that. It might take a little digging online. It might take going to farmer's markets and talking to people, but connect, connect and, and, and get to know your farmers, get to know local food produ producers and get comfortable with understanding where, What's my biome? Where do I live? What's my food shed, right? What, what, what does this place where I live produce naturally? What are natural ecosystems around here and ecological processes that can be harnessed to produce food rather than this, this fight, which we've had for so many, so many generations now to fight against the natural processes and produce these industrial monocrops where you know, it's just ecological wasteland where it's, there's one single thing and that's not how the natural world works. So I think if people can do that, I mean, honestly, grow a garden in your backyard. Uh, it's, it's very doable to do something of that. Learn about composting, have some backyard chickens if, if your municipality allows it. If they don't allow it, get quail because they're really quiet and nobody will know you have them, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, and if you live in an apartment, fine, get a pot and put some plants in it. Try to figure out how does this stuff work? Try to grow some basil and thyme and oregano or whatever. You know, start learning about how that process works. And those are the sorts of things that I help, help people reconnect. And those reconnections alone are not gonna change the needle on policy. But what they're gonna do is they're gonna motivate you so that you get passionate about this stuff to then go out and push for the big policy, big structural changes we need to see that will shift our reliance away from fossil fuel, a fossil fuel-based civilization into something that is regenerative, is working with natural processes rather than just hammering away at this industrial model that is destroying the natural world. I love that. I am so like, that's, I feel like, especially for a lot of the people who listen to us, um, you know, we started out more in the CrossFit space. A lot of people who have done paleo or do paleo or used to do paleo and have that awareness around their food. And all it is is just one more step in that direction of finding a CSA, um, supporting farmers who are regenerative. And, you know, at this right now, that movement is gaining so much momentum that the farmers will be most likely advertising that. And so it's easy to find them, the ones who are. Um, for folks who are listening, another great um, resource to learn more about regenerative farming in the U.S. is Mad Agriculture. Just go to madagriculture.org um, and learn a little bit more about that. There's also some really interesting work that uh, Patagonia is doing if anybody else wants to kind of 
dig into that a little bit more if this is the first time you're ever hearing the phrase regenerative agriculture. Um, Even Outside Magazine did a piece about it recently. So I love that you brought that up. And I love that it's just like, it is just so tangible. Like at the end of the day, that, you know, in and of itself, buying food that's farmed regeneratively isn't necessarily the solution. It's the ethos that goes into that of now I'm connected. Now I care. Yeah. And, you know, companies are figuring this stuff out. So you mentioned Patagonia, which is an outstanding uh, example of this sort of stuff. They have a film that's available online called Unbroken Ground. It's on YouTube. Go watch it. They have some really good stuff in there. And they've, they've started a group um, along with a number of other companies called regenorganic.org. And regenorganic.org is coming up with the idea of a certification process that is looking at soil health, cover crops, promoting biodiversity and things like that, um, animal welfare. So animals are living out natural, they're, they're pasture raised, they're being taken care of really, really well. And the other thing that Regen Organic, the Regenerative Organic Alliance is doing is they're adding in social fairness. So capacity building, fair treatment and fair pay for farm workers, you know, living wages, good working conditions. And that's something that not a lot of people talk about when we're talking about organics or, you know, eating sustainably and stuff like that, because the farm workers are really, really important. And what I like about the Regenerative Organic Alliance is that they're combining soil health, animal welfare, and social fairness, and they're really paying attention to that. And when you have a company like Patagonia involved in it, they were doing socially responsible business before it was cool to do it. And they know how to go out and figure out and to audit and to make sure that, you know what, is our food being produced not just in an ecologically responsible way, but is this food being produced in a socially responsible way? Because we can have the best, you know, regenerative natural ecosystem sequestering carbon and creating great nutrient-dense food. But if the workers who are working on the farm are exploited, that's not really a good thing, right? So that's what I, that's where I think, you know, getting to know your farmer, getting to know your food producers is really, really a critical piece of that. And I'm really encouraged to see the Regenerative Organic Alliance start Um, They've got a website, they've got some information out there um, and talk about their passion for it. And, you know, they're really passionate about this. And I think it's going to start moving the needle. There's other companies out that are doing some really cool stuff with this. Epic, for example, which a lot of CrossFitters will know about. Uh, They produce Epic bars. Um, It's called Epic Provisions. They produce, they started with bison um, and now they're doing a lot of other stuff like that. But they've got an annual report that I, I use to teach from because it's so well done and it's so well researched looking at how do bison help regenerate the natural prairies that we've mostly lost? How do they increase organic matter, aerate the soil with their hooves, they, their manure fertilizes the soil and they're sequestering massive amounts of carbon while they're doing it. So the, the fossil fuels are a huge problem. And how do we sequester this carbon? And one of the ways of doing it is these grazing ruminants, which is these naturally evolved ecosystems, you know, and, and pre-contact before Europeans uh, colonized North America, there was something to 30 to 60 million bison and not even counting the millions of pronghorn, antelope and deer and other things like that. And 
there's a reason the Midwest is so productive. It's because there's tens of thousands or millions of years of these ruminants sequestering carbon into these grasslands. And that's part of the stuff we need to do to find ways to look at these natural ecosystems and find these natural, naturally occurring processes and then kind of boost it. Like how can we take a company like Epic Provisions or Patagonia or other people like that they're identifying these systems and they're finding ways to connect with it. And they're really transparent about it, which is great because they're in a mission to educate people. So, you know, find a farmer who's doing regenerative agriculture, talk to them, go look to their, go look at their farm, buy their products, find ways to help support that. Because this, this is really growing and it's starting to shift. And it's, I think it's a really concrete way people can get involved in sustainability. There's a farmer, um, not too far from my house where we get a lot of our meat and chickens. And he says, we think about the bison needing the grass, but we don't think about how the grass needs the bison. And it's, yes. it's so like it, when it comes together like that and you realize like, wow, we, you, to your point, to all of your points, we really have just stripped the connection and have tried to isolate these systems so much that we took away the fact that these all used to work completely on their own. And by isolating them, we've, caused the problems and that returning them back yep. to the way that they were, you know, it's, it's not about inner engineering some crazy solution. It's about going back to the solution that started the whole process. Right. Right. And, and you're harnessing, you're harnessing, this is, this is the interesting thing where, again, there's this huge overlap between CrossFit and all the concerns about you know, performance and health and things like that, and this sustainability conversation. And what's been interesting for us is, like on our on our our small campus, we have we have ISDSI, our institute about teaching about sustainability. We have our cafe in the middle, and we have our CrossFit gym. And it's like a it's like a physical Venn diagram where you've got you've got the CrossFitters are concerned about how do I eat healthy. And how do I do that in a way which is sustainable? And then you have our students who are concerned about sustainability, learning about, and they all do, you know, they get a membership in our CrossFit gym as a part of their study abroad program, where they're like, wow, you know, if I treat my body well, I'm going to be like more physically sustainable in my own body. And I think that that, that connection between uh, our personal health and the health of the planet is really tightly coupled. And like you said, with this farmer, you know, yeah, the bison need the grass, but the grass need the bison. And you look at the Savory Institute and others who have been doing research on this, and you can see that the problem is it's not cows, it's how are cows managed? Are they managed in a way which is replicating these natural ecosystems and natural ways? And they, in regenerative agriculture, is actually sequestering carbon. Um, there was a really good study done not that long ago, uh, in the last year or so, looking at a, a place called White Oak Pastures, and they're part of the Regenerative Organic Alliance. And their cattle there are carbon negative. That is, the cattle are sequestering more carbon than greenhouse gases are emitted in the entire life cycle from everything being done on the farm, other farm activities, slaughter, transport, everything. They're actually a net sink for carbon. And 
the only reason that works is because uh, the owner of White Oak Pastures is basically created a savanna ecosystem where he is he's harnessing and, and using these natural ecological processes to produce highly nutrient-dense food in a humane and ethical way and at the same time sequestering massive amounts of carbon. And there's lots of other people who are doing that. So, you know, it's really cool to see where people are going back. There's a guy... Mark Shepard in Wisconsin, who's created an oak savanna polyculture where he's gone and done the work to figure out like, what would this place look like a thousand years ago? And it would have had bison and antelope and things like that. He doesn't have bison, but he has cattle who are very similar. And he doesn't have antelope, but he can bring in pigs or he can bring in goats and other things like that. And he's creating this really, really productive system that is producing chestnuts and vegetables and other things like that by, by looking at what are natural ecologies, what are natural ecosystems like, and how can we use that to produce highly nutrient-dense food and at the same time be sequestering massive amounts of carbon. I want to touch upon really quick about how we hear so much about people saying, oh, well, I'm just not going to eat meat because it's bad for the planet. I mean, we're, we're really not talking about what you should or shouldn't eat. You really just need to find practices where people are practicing regenerative farming. Well, remember, for every complex problem, there's an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. And wrong, right. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I was, that's what I was going to say, is I think this segues nicely into what you kind of alluded to with the sacred cow. A lot of the the questions that we get, and I mean, I see this in the natural foods industry so much right now around oh, sure. quote unquote plant-based diets. And first of all, I eat cows who eat grass, so it's plant-based, but <laughs> yes, I, it just, that phrase just makes me crazy, but there's a, there's so many things that right now swirling around from this conversation. And I kind of want to bring them together into that, into that question. First of all, you know, I, I think what you said earlier about our personal decisions are not nearly as impactful as we want to believe that they are. And it has more to do with policy. You know, factory farming and conventional farming practices is objectively making the earth unhealthier. And not all of that points to, a, you know, there is not a, a clear, yes, you should become a vegetarian for the planet or no, actually eating meat is what you, you know, it's, it's not black and white. And so you alluded to the, the sacred cow and that project going on. So I would love to hear a little bit more about that and also hear from your perspective and from the research that you've seen, what is the case for being a vegetarian or not being a vegetarian in your opinion? That's, you know, food choices are like a religion and it's really hard to talk about it because these are very deeply held beliefs that people have and I get it you know I get it that people want to be they want to be ethical they want to make good choices and they want to feel good about their choices so I think that it's complicated right I think I think for sure absolutely everybody should have the right to eat however they feel they want to eat right you know if you want to be vegan paleo keto intermittent fast Pro, you know, macrobiotic, whatever, go for it. That's totally your choice. You should have the sovereignty, you know, yourself to do, to make your own choices. But what I would argue though, is that you need to make those choices informed by science, which is where it gets tricky, right? But also trying to figure out how do I do stuff in a way which is going to be healthy for the planet. And, you know, the issue isn't so much what you eat, it's how it's produced. 
I do know of people who are using animals in agriculture that don't eat them. That's fine. If that's your personal ethical choice, that's, that's fine. But I think, I think to say that give up meat to save the planet ignores the fact that there's no natural ecosystem in the world that does not have animals as a part of it. And, you know, there's, you can be plant-based and causing massive ecological destruction if you're eating from industrial organic farms, right? It's row crops that's devastating ecologically. And, and, it's, and the, the problem gets back to fossil fuels. And I think there's a big misunderstanding where a lot of people, I, and I get it, people really wanna do the right thing. They read all these numbers. There's a study that just came out that is showing like, beef has this massive impact and, and dairy is the most terrible thing you could possibly eat and all this sort of stuff. And which is the best plant-based quote unquote milk? And a lot of that comes from, I get it, it comes from a good place. People really wanna do the right thing. However, a lot of that comes from really shoddy science. And the part of the problem is that Honestly, the fossil fuel companies and a lot of the big conglomerates for ultra-processed foods make a lot more money off of so-called plant-based foods than they do off of naturally regenerative whole foods because the processing is where you can add in all your, all your profit. And I think for people who are really trying to figure this out, like, well, I've heard I should go meatless to save the planet, it's like, you know, it's, 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 first of all, it's not that simple. And it, there's a fundamental misunderstanding about how the natural world works. Methane from cows, and this is something, again, I would urge you guys and all of your listeners to, to follow um, uh, Sustainable Dish and Instagram and on Twitter and on Diana Rogers, as well as Rob Wolf and, and the work he's doing. But essentially that you need to think about there's two different sources for carbon in the atmosphere if you look at greenhouse gases and the real problem is that fossil fuels which are as the name says fossils it's this ancient carbon is getting added to the atmosphere and you know it's pulled up out of the ground it's unlocked it's burned and it's in the atmosphere and that's the primary issue in and around global warming. Cows are part of and are other ruminants, so cows and bison and, and other animals like that. They eat grass and forages and things like that. They ferment it in their guts. They burp out methane. They don't fart methane, just as this is a little aside, right? Um, that is an important distinction because you hear a lot about cow farts, so debunk. Right. It's like, <laughs> well, cow farts aren't really a thing, so... It's like, go spend some time with cows. It's like, anyway, right. So uh, there's a whole rat hole we could do, go down with that. But so cows eat, the cows eat the grass, they eat the forages, and they're, they're pooping out, they're, they're pooping, they're stepping on it, they're driving that into, into the ground. And it's part of a natural process where cattle are eating, and say, say take bison on the prairies, you know, they, they're eating this grass and oh, what other, oh, whatever other forages might be available. They're eating this, they're burping out some of the methane, they're pooping and whatever, and that breaks down. It's part of a natural cycle. Where did the methane, where did the carbon in the methane that cattle are eating, bison in particular, or cows or whoever, where did that come from? It came from grass that grew last year. And when that grass grew, it used carbon 
to build the grass. So the difference is that fossil fuels are, think of about it as a stock. CO2 gets released into the atmosphere and it builds up. Methane, which is from ruminants and other bison and cattle and other animals like that. The, the carbon that's being released by the ruminants was sequestered, usually in the last year or so, goes into the atmosphere, it's methane, it breaks down in a few years and is reabsorbed into the plants. It's, the, uh, it's reabsorbed by a lot of the stuff in the soil, all these microorganisms and other things like that. The grazing on, on the grass actually stimulates the plant to, to put down deeper roots and these exudates of, of carbon and things like that. So it's a completely different thing. So what you'll see a lot, and as a scientist, this drives me bonkers, is people are like, oh, look at the carbon footprint of a hamburger. Most of the time they've made some significant mistakes in how they run the numbers. And it's like massive misinformation about that sort of stuff. But the big issue is that fossil fuels are fundamentally different than biogenic sources of carbon. Ruminants are part of a natural process and they are, sure, they're gonna burp out some methane. That methane is eventually gonna break down in a few years and be reabsorbed back into that natural system. If the cattle, like at White Oak Pastures, Epic Provisions, other places like that, if they're being farmed in a, in, a, in a regenerative way, they're going to be taking that carbon and sinking more of it into the soil. So what they're actually able to do is draw down carbon from the atmosphere. So if you're eating plant-based, you are very likely eating off of fossil fuels, which are, a, which are building up in the atmosphere, because most of that, even if it's organics, there's, it's not sequestering carbon. And it's certainly not sequestering it as efficiently as a regeneratively grazed ruminants are. So you really can't make the argument that you give up meat to save the planet. What I think you can say, what I think you can say is as an ethical omnivore, you need to be searching out and supporting farmers who are using cattle and other animals as part of a natural system. And that's where regenerative agriculture is so amazing and such a big growing movement is because there are a lot of people doing it. So, I mean, I could go on about this for hours. Yeah, that's a, I know we were just talking about, there's so many things that we could talk to you about for hours and I, we want to wrap this up and potentially have a, a lot of follow-up episodes with you because this is all really kind of blowing my mind to be quite honest. I mean, especially around people who, I mean, there's so many documentaries, there's so many books about going vegan to save the planet. And I, I love what you said too. I think it's just with a lot of practices in our life, if you're going to do something, really, really, really try to figure out why and the good factual information, not just because someone on Instagram said it was important. I, I want to also, <laughs> yeah. I also want to know, just kind of wrapping up to what are the students at ISDSI, what are they leaving with? Like, what are some of the stories they're telling you or just some of the themes that they're kind of like aha moments that you've seen over the years? Because I just think that's really such a, what a cool experience to have. Is there anything that's kind of the main themes that you see when they're leaving of like, my life has changed because of this, or I really learned so much and I didn't know about this. I just kind of want to get in the minds of like what they're taking home. Yeah, we've, we've got a lot of stories. I think when students come to ISDSI, they're looking for something different. We're an experiential field-based, community-based program. We're building the capacity of local communities. 
to have more agency. And what we're trying to teach our students ultimately is to come as good listeners. We don't come to help people in Thailand. We don't come here to do service projects for people here. The students come to listen. And when they come to listen, it's an incredibly empowering act for the local communities that we're involved in. And they come to listen and they come to hear local people tell their stories. And that's powerful and it's transformative both for the students as well as for our local communities. And it becomes this really amazing collaboration where students are going out and they're living with farmers and they learn a lot of stuff about sustainable food production and how honestly the food issue is a human rights issue. Food sovereignty is something that most people in the West never think about. But uh, you talk to activists like Vandana Shiva and other people like that, food sovereignty is absolutely critical for the two-thirds world, for the global south, you know, where people are learning how to save their own seeds and kind of reclaim their cultural heritage. Um, and it's a human rights issue. And for our students to come and connect with those communities changes their lives. They go back and, yeah, I mean, probably most of our students go back and one of the first things they do is join a CSA and start using public transportation. Great, that's a, it's an easy win for us. But I think what happens with students when they come is they get a chance to connect with these authentic communities. And they get a chance to, to see how people who are on the front lines of sustainability, you know, small smallholder tropical farmers doing agriculture, how they get to really live and connect with these natural processes. And what's powerful about it is that we re really work with our students on learning to listen really, really well. And because they're listening, it allows these marginalized communities to tell their stories. I asked, I asked a friend of mine, he's a hill tribe, he's a tribal, Bakanya tribal elder. His name is Pati Saju. And Pati Saju, I asked him one time, I said, Saju, why do you like my students coming to your village? Like, they speak Thai, we, we do intensive Peace Corps style language. They, they learn the language a little bit, they're doing all this sort of stuff, but why do you, why do you like having the students come to the village? And Pati Saju said, I love your students. They ask stupid questions. I'm like, uh, can you unpack that for me a little bit? <laughs> like, yeah, what? like usually that's not what you love about someone. No, no. I'm like, uh, Pati Saju, we need to talk. So <laughs> he said, no, no, no. He says, here's what I mean. They ask questions we would never ask ourselves. And because they ask those questions, we would never ask ourselves it's helped us learn more about who we are. And, it's, and Pati Saju said, it's helped me and my community in, in Hui He Village. It's helped us better able to articulate why what we're doing is important. So when the government officials come in and they try to push us off our ancestral lands and they claim that we're destroying the environment with how we farm, we have an answer because we've been teaching your students for years about what we do and why it's sustainable and how it works. So that by this, by asking questions, by listening, our students, the college students that are coming from a broad spectrum in the United States, are able to come and empower these local communities. So that Pati Saju and other people like him are better able to take control over their lives. 
And so when these marginalized communities that we work with and learn from and, and, and listen from, when, when they're engaged with this struggle for human rights and the struggle for land rights and the struggle for food sovereignty, because they've spent so much time teaching, they're very, very good at articulating what are the issues? Why does it matter? How does this work? Because they practice with a group of outsiders like our students who are friendly and eager and willing to learn. So when somebody who's a national park official comes in and says, yeah, we've just, re we've just rezoned this area, so your village is now inside a national park, we're gonna evict everybody. They can say, wait a minute, let's unpack, let's, let's unpack that, let's really talk about that and make arguments that are allowing these local communities to do a better job of advocating for their own needs in their own context. That's so interesting. And yeah, I mean, once you put it like that, it does make sense. That's very bizarre, but helpful benefit. Yeah, it's I mean, yeah. it's really the, the roots of what we're trying to do at ISDSI is to connect communities together. And I think college students are really craving an authentic connection with what's happening in the real world. And, you know, because everything we're doing is rooted in these local communities. You know, we can talk about carbon sequestration and food sovereignty and all this sort of stuff. And that's what we do in our program. We go out and we dig up soil and we look at the carbon content and you know, macroinvertebrates and all stuff like that. But the real magic comes from learning from farmers and others who have been producing this food using these ancestral sustainable techniques so that the students come back away from the program inspired and they remember, I mean, they'll, they'll forget my lecture on day three of sustainable food systems, but they're not going to forget somebody like Pati Saju. And they're not going to forget the lessons they learned from him. And they're not going to forget the lessons they learned from our friend Bui, who's, she's a young farmer. She has a seed bank where she's saving these heirloom seeds. And she's part of a global network where people are exchanging this very valuable indigenous knowledge about how to save seeds how to use these seeds in a way which is sustainable. And, and it's not part of corporate control. And it's not, it's not something that's used just by these big companies to turn a profit. It's actually by these local grassroots communities that are really concerned about their own survival and their own sovereignty. Well, Mark, thank you so much for chatting with us. I feel like we could have this conversation for hours and hours, but we want to respect your time and um, no let problem. you get back into the jungle that it sounds like you live yeah. in. Um, <laughs> I really hope that everyone appreciated like the, the jungle ambience because I sure did. So if people want to learn a little bit more apart from, um, you know, Googling the name of your program and following the sustainable dish, um, what else, is there one or two more resources that you would point them to? Sure. Um, our program is isdsi.org. Sustainable dish, definitely follow her. Uh, Rob Wolf is another a place to follow. I would also, another resource is Google Epic Provisions. They are doing some actually fantastic work with uh, carbon sequestration and regenerative agriculture using bison and trying to rewild the prairies. 
and Patagonia, Patagonia Provisions in particular, is really diving deep into the ethics around, you know, how do you eat meat? How do you do it in a way which respects the animal, respects the land, respects indigenous communities, both for their salmon and their bison and, and other things they're doing. Those would be a, a, a good place to start. I think there's a lot of great videos on YouTube about regenerative agriculture. Um, and you can find some great stories and testimonials from farmers talking about, you know, how it's rewilded and brought back tremendous biodiversity to their farms. And I think it's a good place for people to start if they're into this sort of stuff. That is so cool. I also just as a side note, really hope that Greg Glassman knows what you guys are doing out there with everything and a CrossFit gym. Yeah, we're probably uh, we've, we've talked to uh, some people about this. I was at the games uh, last summer and talked with Kathy Glassman and some others about it. As far as I know, we're the only study abroad program in the world that has a CrossFit gym as a part of it. So yeah, it's pretty cool. We really are very stoked with you know how CrossFit is pushing and opening up these new areas into looking at health and longevity and, and things like that. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mark, so much for the work that you do. And you've definitely enlightened us on so many things. I know Claire was like, just jumping up and down with excitement about, about this conversation. And it'll probably be buzzing about it for weeks on end. So just really, I know really regenerative grateful. agriculture is like, it's the hill I'm willing to die on. Yeah. So I'm very excited to get to talk about awesome. it. Awesome. <laughs> Great. And uh, yeah, if you're going to be at the games, let us know because we will probably be there too. All right. Like we do it, like we do it, like we do it. We got the rock.